Hello and welcome to The Landed Podcast. I'm John Montgomery, co-founder of Landed, a travel company specializing in tailor-made journeys throughout Latin America and the Antarctic. At Landed, we're devoted to exploring these regions, searching out exceptional experiences and locations for our clients. The Landed Podcast profiles some of our favorite places and brings you conversations with friends we've made along the way, explorers, artists, and visionaries. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. Stephanie Bonham Carter hails from northern Quito, Ecuador. While at boarding school in the UK, she developed her love of travel and cultivated her sense of adventure. In 2003, while traveling in her home country with future husband Michael Mestag, the two made an unplanned, life-changing bushwhack hike on the Galapagos island of Santa Cruz. Together, they created one of the finest tented camp experiences in the Western Hemisphere. With just nine tent cabins and a family suite, Galapagos Safari Camp has become a model for sustainable, luxury tourism throughout Latin America. Stephanie and Michael take their Galapagos stewardship seriously. The commitment to preserve and heal their land was foundational in the conception and development of the camp and continues to inform daily operations. Staying at Galapagos Safari Camp is an out-and-out pleasure. The Australian-crafted tents are spacious, comfortable, and equipped with ensuite bathrooms. After days spent exploring the islands and enjoying up-close encounters with endemic wildlife, guests can indulge in a dip in the pool, a sundowner at the viewing platform, and superior dinners at the main lodge. Over the years, we've witnessed a consistent string of successes for treasured landed clients at Galapagos Safari Camp. We'd be honored to orchestrate your dream trip to these enchanted isles. Stephanie and Michael now reside in Tourbach, Switzerland with their two children. We spoke with Stephanie while she was in Quito, overseeing the camp's head office. Stephanie Bonham Carter, welcome to the Landed Podcast. How are you? John. Thank you, John. It's lovely to be here and lovely to to talk to you. How wonderful partners and you've been so supportive during this uh, very um, challenging time. So it's wonderful to uh, to feel alive again. Where are you now? Well, I'm in Quito, funnily enough, having spent uh, a few weeks in the Galapagos. Um, so 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 yeah, I'm 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 back in the cradle of it all. Okay, I'm holding my envy at bay as we talk. <laughs> well, actually, it's really rather cold, so I have to say that Switzerland's weather seems more appealing right now. <laughs> and the family's in Switzerland? Yes, yes, back back in school. Uh, Lawrence is doing his exams, and uh, yeah, Jasmine is also back for her last term. Well, I want you to give my best to Michael. Thank you, thank you. Were you always so adventurous? Um, I think I was at heart when I was a child and I was here in Quito with my mother. Um, my life wasn't that adventurous. You know, my, my mother was uh, uh, quite conservative and, uh, you know, not very outdoorsy. So I think that when I became a teenager and I had more freedom, when I moved to England, uh, that there were all these other doors that were opened. And um, I took every opportunity that was available and I wanted to try everything and I wanted to go everywhere and I was very curious about the world. So, so I, I, that's when my love for travel started and adventure. <laughs> What's your earliest or what is your strongest or favorite memory from that time of travel? That's a good question, but I, I don't think there is one particular moment. It was repeating that excitement of going to a, a new place. Uh, it was like a Russian door that needed to be opened. And uh, the deeper you went, the more you found. Uh, and and so the excitement of going to, to a new country, new culture, different language, different food, uh, uh, that, that was, uh, it, it was food for thought, food for soul, 
and, and yeah, it became addictive, I suppose, until I met Michael and we decided to to go on to our Galapagos adventure. Where did you two meet? Uh, in Spain, uh, in Ronda, in the south in Andalusia, mm-hmm. which is where Michael's parents uh, lived uh, at the time. They, they, they're Dutch, but they had moved to the south of Spain. And uh, that was a family home. So through mutual friends, we we met each other. And I have to say, um, yeah, when I saw Michael and uh, he, he really encapsulated the sort of adventure man. And <laughs> yeah, everything seemed to be possible. He cuts a dashing figure, Michael. <laughs> I don't know what it is about him, but yeah, there was the promise of the adventure. And uh, it was very much delivered, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) So you probably brought him back to Ecuador. Yes, I did. But there was no intention there. Uh, The sole intention was to introduce him to, to an essential part of me. And as I was coming here on holiday, uh, I, I had no intention of moving back, really. Uh, but I loved visiting. And so when when he joined me and we explored the country together, it, it was important for me because I, I allowed him to, 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 to get into a part of me that wasn't immediately obvious to the eye of anyone that would have met me back in Europe, you know. And the fact that he understood it so easily, the culture, that he could speak the language, um, it it was an easy way of uh, going deeper. So you traveled around the Andes, the coast, the Amazon, and eventually the Galapagos? Yes, I can't really remember the order, but we did do quite a lot of of, of the country at the time. And uh, and we went to, to, to the Galapagos with no, again, with no intention of anything. So everything that happened afterwards was very spontaneous. And uh, it was an instinct almost, you know, as if it was meant to be uh, there and then for however long it lasted, which... Which which allowed us to 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 have the kids there and to have their initial yes uh, at camp in the raw and uh, wild way that we we had hoped it would be. Would you take us back to that special day when you arrived at the farm that would become <laughs> Galapagos Safari Camp? Yes. Um, we were staying in, uh, in Puerto Llora, down in, in the port. Uh, we were doing a land-based experience. We were doing a lot of diving. And uh, we decided to go up to the highlands. Um, and we took a couple of bikes and went uh, to, to, to look at the tortoises. And um, there was a, a gentleman. His name was Miguel Angel Arias. Um, and a charismatic person that had had been in Galapagos for a long, long time. He too had made a life there. He had his family there. And he ran uh, a little place, you know it, is El Chato, the first one. Uh, and so we started talking to him and uh, and Michael, you know, he, he, he loves to find out about property and uh, talk to locals. And so he, he's very sociable, Michael. And so they were talking about it, and, and then he found out that there was this property for sale, which was not very far. And it was quite late in the afternoon already, so, of course, there is me thinking, we ought to get back, because otherwise it's going to be dark, and knowing the equator, six o'clock, and suddenly it's dark. Um, and I suppose it was around four o'clock or something, and we thought, okay, if we're going to walk that much. And there was that one moment when... when I almost said to Michael, it's too late, let's go back. And for some reason, I didn't. I said, okay, let's go and check this out. Um, But imagine, had I said no, we wouldn't be having this conversation. (laughs) So um, we walked there and um, 
you know the farm, you know the property, and you know that there is a road to go up to the lodge. But at the time, there was no road. There was only a little cat, uh, cattle path with elephant grass, which was literally taller than I was. And I was wearing my little flip-flops. <laughs> so imagine lava rocks and tall grass and walking there. Uh, there was nothing for such a long time. It was flat and elephant grass. And I thought, what are we doing? But anyway, it was adventurous. And at one point, Miguel Angel, this gentleman, climbed up a tree. It was so funny. There he was, climbing up like a monkey. And of course, we had to follow him. And when we did, and we looked at the stunning view, uh, and you know the view, of course, you can look onto uh, the, the Northern Islands, uh, you see Baltra, and you see uh, the Daphnes, and then on the west, you can see all the way up to Isabella and Pinzon, and sometimes Santiago. So it, it was just mesmerizing. And that was the time and the particular point when we said, okay, let's dream. So, yeah, that was the story. I love it so much. The world is richer for you taking that hike. <laughs> well, it's a, a bit romantic, I suppose. What was the biggest challenge in bringing this dream to reality? <laughs> Is it nothing but challenge? <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm laughing because, uh, of course, the toughest part wasn't the dream, but the reality. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not the reality of living there, of building. I mean, that, that's beautiful. But the reality that any project needs to be sustainable, financially sustainable. And to keep that alive, it, it entails making it into a business. And the business part is... I mean, I don't love it. I'm not interested in it, but it needs to be done. And so that reality is all-consuming sometimes, you know? I don't know if it makes sense to you, but... Well, it does. I mean, traveling the world was our dream and mm -hmm. encouraging people to love the places that we care so much about um, and doing that in a way that's financially sustainable, you know, for a family. Well, that's a challenge. I, I just spoke with um, Hans Fister from Cayuga, who you probably mm -hmm. know, and we talked about the three legs of the the stool, the triple bottom line, one being economic, one leg mm -hmm. being environmental, and one leg being social, and the balance mm -hmm. that needs to be there. But if you don't have the economic, the other two are impossible. Impossible, impossible. And I think that it's very easily forgotten. Um, you know, one thinks, yes, as you say, the social and the environmental, but if you don't have the, that essential layer that holds that there, uh, everything falls, goes to pot. That's why I think so many very good projects um, don't see any fruition because if you don't have the financial sustainability behind the project and the long-term vision to, to, to make it um, independent eventually, uh, it it's, it's very much stays there. You know? If one were to look at the Galapagos on a map and think about, well, you know, only maybe 5% of the land mass is available for human habitation. I would probably build a hotel on the coast. It's interesting that you, you built in the cool highlands of Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that maybe unusual location? It, it, it's a good question. Um, several factors. I mean, it was the very first property that we looked at without, we weren't looking then we thought, okay, we love this. There is potential here. Uh, we would love to live in the Galapagos and, and, and make a life there. But then we started comparing and looking at other properties. And the beauty of this particular one is that it's surrounded by the National Park. So development is inevitable. But being looking onto the National Park any development there would be delayed if it ever happened at all. 
So that view was guaranteed. Uh, it's, you know, in two fronts, we have the national park and the road ends where we are. And we only have one neighbor on the on the east side. And, and that is a farm. So we felt um, more, more sheltered from that perspective, from the developmental perspective. Then um, what's interesting about the property, which actually we didn't know about when when we made this decision to buy it, uh, but the, the weather in Galapagos changes a lot and you have a lot of microclimate and you can be sitting, you know, meters away from another place which sits on a cloud, but we're slightly lower. So we're in, in the transition zone, which makes it interesting from many perspectives. Uh, the, the flora is a blend of uh, the lush vegetation with the, you know, with a more arid one. So, so you see that contrast. Uh, also, during the hot season, it's cooler. So at night, you are seldom hot. And during the cold season, uh, it, it's milder as well. And, and, and the cloud sort of sits right next to us, but not quite on us. Um, so, and we also love the view from there. Whereas if you are on the coast, which of course is beautiful to be on, on the beach, there is more development. I mean, the places on uh, Galapagos where you are allowed to build, which are close to a beach, is they're the, the small towns, right? So we didn't want to be there either. So many factors, I suppose. And, and we, we like to be a little bit far removed from the crowds. Yeah, the dream of Galapagos is one of right, unspoiled wildness of of a time and a place where the animals have no natural fear mm -hmm. of the human visitors, and and one where the nature is undisturbed, and you don't get that in Puerto Ayora. As as nice no. as some of the properties are. As soon as you leave, you're in the middle of a street with lots of advertising and little motorbikes and cars, and it's just like any town on the mainland as mm -hmm. soon as you're a block from the coast. What's so special about Safari Camp to me is that time-before-time time feeling mm. of being on the tents or at the viewing platform or even at the restaurant and looking out on this sea of green, uh, in an island chain that's, that's pretty arid. But here's this sea mm -hmm. of green in these highlands mm -hmm. that, that catch the clouds and bring the mist. You're never uncomfortably cold or, or uncomfortably hot. It's a Goldilocks climate. Mm -hmm. But you look out on these islands, really fl floating in the sea, and they just go on mountains beyond mountains. And then to have the wildlife so close, in fact, in engaging in the property, mm -hmm. uh, giant tortoises meandering about on their way to and from the coast, mockingbirds and uh, warblers sort of flitting in and out of the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't get that anywhere else. No, it is, it is rather special. I have to say I do love it. <laughs> That's a beautiful description. Yeah, you know, when um, now that I went back, of course, the kids hadn't been back for two years, you know. Um, so I was curious to see how they would react, but it all comes back to life. And we all just adore it there, you know, in spite of all the challenges. It's the one place where you can really feel that you're not you, you're not trapped in your body or in your ego or in your identity. You are just part of the cosmological energy, you know? It's, um, it's very special. What has adventure meant to you as a family, or this adventure, and to who Lawrence and Jasmine have become, who they are? I mean, of course, the, the choice of the adventure was... Michaels and, and, and I, um, and the kids were born into it. And so for them, it, it, it's perfectly normal. 
they were born into it and that's how they grew up. I mean, Lawrence grew up walking barefoot on, on, on lava gravel and, and tripping over the pavement when we took him to Quito. And, you know, Jasmine grew up uh, thinking that, you know, the wildlife around her was perfectly normal. And, of course, we traveled back and forth to Europe and we travel around the world a lot as well. So for them, I, I, I think that they will only understand it in retrospect uh, when they're older. But uh, I think that... Uh, what it has given them is 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 you can't put it into words. It's deeper. It's it's that communion with nature, that communion with the environment, uh, that ability to 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 be fearless, like the Galapagos creatures are, you know, uh, in a natural environment, which doesn't come naturally to all children. You know, again, we don't really question it, but. When we were hosting at the camp before we moved to Quito, um, I do remember seeing a lot of children coming and they were not in their natural environment. You know, so for them, it took a bit. They needed to adapt. So, so there is there is a difference. I suppose the, the, the strengths, the skills that they developed as a result of this are, are more at a soul level, if you see what I mean. I don't know if that makes sense. I spent three years on an island as as a child from eight to eleven, and it is the part of my childhood that I think of when I think of of being young. Oh, I had no idea. So we had jungle all around us, and white mm. sand beaches, and clear blue water, and interesting cultural events happening. Mm. Little villages to explore, and. Uh, rivers and shrines in our backyard and all kinds of wildlife to catch and, you know, or pursue and typhoons that would roll through every once in a while. So it was, it was a magical childhood. And I don't know that I appreciated it until I was in my thirties, maybe. Right. You see, it's in retrospect when one looks at, uh, one, one, one has more understanding, right? What do you think that gave you? A kind of confidence, mm-hmm. um, a sense of at homeness in mm-hmm. wild places, and the the idea that I'm not tied to one place. That's not my identity. I'm a a sojourner, a vagabond, and I take mm-hmm. me the me of me with me as I go. Mm-hmm to explore and experience new, new places. Is that, mm. I, I don't know. I haven't worked it all out. I'm sort of renting no. these ideas. But if, if, if my children feel the way that you feel when they are older, that, that, that will make me a very happy mother. When I think about safari camp and your vision for its development, the phrase that always comes back to me is appropriate luxury. Mm-hmm. This is an arid climate. Fresh water is scarce and precious. Tell us your goals for the development. Our goals were, I I think, have accomplished our goals when we had to make the decision of um, what type of experience we wanted to create, how we were going to build it and and make it concrete. Um, For us, it was common sense. Uh, Now that we've worked in the industry for a long time and you hear all the eco-sustainability blurb that, you know, it's inevitable, uh, we never thought about that. We only thought about what made sense in that particular place, at that particular time. And we were, we, we felt strongly about having a minimal impact, leaving a, 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 a light footprint. So, so the idea of the tented camp was what made the most sense. Uh, had we decided to build a hotel, for example, I, I, I couldn't have stomached that because... I would have felt that I was just imposing on on the, this very pristine and beautiful environment. So we wanted to be mindful of how we did things, and 
So we, we actually spend a lot of time uh, with several architects and advisors to to see where we could place a tent so there would be a natural airflow. And then on the other hand, enough shelter during the drizzly season uh, when we built the lodge, which needed to be on the highest point. The reason why it's semicircular is not because we wanted to make it pretty, but because we were following the, the ground and, you know, I'll never build anything semicircular again. <laughs> but it made sense because we were following the land. Uh, the water collection as well. We, we, Michael, with his Dutch genes, has been very into making sure that w w we were as sustainable as possible with the water collection because, of course, there is no uh, fresh water sources in the Galapagos. So the water situation is complicated. Uh, or like with the details uh, about building that could be easily managed uh, and they are not complicated or expensive or, you know, it, it's not rocket science. It's just choices that one makes. And then, of course, it was our life. So we got involved with uh, reforestation and understood the, the, the drama of introduced species and so how to reintroduce endemic species, which is a, an ongoing project that takes a very long time. I mean, the vegetation around the lodge what was when we arrived, which was pure elephant grass, to what is now, where you can see how the endemic uh, flora starts interacting, you know, with the shade, and you have the wonderful undergrowth with, with local and, uh, uh, sorry, with the endemic uh, vegetation. It's, it's an ongoing project. Uh, goals at the moment, one of our big, big goals was to uh, be completely solar, uh, we're only partially, uh, but that project got stuck uh, as a result of the pandemic. I mean, we, we were there, we got the permits, we were ready to roll, but the investment that that requires, we, we weren't able to do for, for the time being until we can recuperate a little bit. Um, so, so that would be one of our goals. Um, and I think that to be able to show the local population and indeed the world, that there are ways of having tourism projects that are mindful, environmentally friendly, that, but, you know, a quiet voice rather than the sort of huge marketing shout out, that, that's what's at the core of what we do. You've been very light on the land. These tents are all on platforms. Were, were the tents, I, I seem to remember they were made in Australia. Were these a custom fabrication? Yes. Well, they, they, they were. We sourced them in Australia and they've been amazing. Uh, we worked on them. So we, we built an extension suit. So, so we made them custom, so to speak. Um, and everything about the camp, the, the, the furniture, everything has been chosen by us. I mean, Michael and I can tell you where the last bit of everything that's in there comes from and the reasons why we we chose we chose them. Um, but one thing that I actually forgot to mention that I think is important to discuss is that the model that we followed in terms of minimal impact is not just about the camp itself, but the type of experience. Uh, we always thought that less was more. And so as a result, you know, we could have built a, a camp double the size of what we have, right? Uh, which would probably make it a more interesting financial proposition. But we decided against it because we wanted to keep the experience more private, more um, more manageable, and, and also for the environment. I mean, the more people that you have, the more impact that you are going to have, right? So we wanted to make sure that we had enough people so that we wouldn't just think of people as numbers, so that we could actually interact with them, so that we can make them feel at home. And also so that we didn't have masses coming to to the archipelago, right? I mean, right. when I see a lot of people going to and fro, I mean, it just sort of feels like cattle rearing. We didn't want to do that. Uh, and that led to a, a type of uh, experience that I, I don't think is easy to replicate, especially because it's so 
labor intensive and time consuming when we create our safaris you know whether it's a couple or a family or a group it, it, we work around them and their needs and so it's not as if we're bunching people together so that the numbers work um and and i think that also has uh, or or is a shows the type of uh, mindfulness that we've chosen to have with the way that we do things and the way that, the way that we run our business. Um, these tents are not in any way a hardship to stay in. They have beautiful hardwood floors, ceiling fans, space heaters, which, which aren't usually needed. Uh, no air conditioning would be required here because of the ventilation and the, the, the mm-hmm. ocean breezes that come up the mountain. Um, but you know, ensuite bathroom with all the things you would expect. Uh, we yeah. do have like a coffee, um, coffee station, but and water to drink. Mm. And there's a, a, a balcony with, um, uh, nice deck chairs to sit out and watch the sunset, mm-hmm. uh, sliding glass doors. There's, you know, the bedding is, is top notch. There's a, a security box to lock up your things if you wish. Mm-hmm. But they're elevated, so it's not uncommon to have guests write us and say, I was having coffee on the deck this morning, and a giant Galapagos tortoise walked right under my deck as I was having coffee. Yeah. Birds come to visit, and you said it, but I want to make sure I understand when you arrived, this whole area was just ranch land. It was just elephant grass. And you've rewilded it, reforested it with endemic trees. You would never know that visiting now. It doesn't look no. like secondary forest. No, well, yeah, it's, a, it, it's, it's an ongoing process, as I said. It takes time, and it's been interesting to see how it's changed. Uh, yeah, I mean, now there is so much vegetation that in some areas we need to perhaps start thinking of pruning so that we don't lose the view altogether, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's come to life and it feels a lot more endemic as a result of it, I think. What is the ideal stay? How many nights would you recommend? When we first started uh, with the camp, I would say that 90% of people would go on a cruise and then they come and stay with us for one or two nights. And interestingly enough, so of course the cruises tend to be seven nights, uh, most of them. And now, uh, after how long? I mean, Lawrence, 14 years, most of our guests actually don't do a cruise and stay with us as a full safari. The minimum safari, I would say, is four nights, which is almost too short. I think ideally six nights gives you a proper sense of place, uh, enough time to also rest, because if you're traveling, it is tiring. So you you want to find a, a, a balance between having just time to appreciate where you are rather than just go, go, go. So, So the pace is also... You know, if people just come in and out and it's all such a rush, you, you don't allow yourself the time to appreciate it. So I think four would be minimum, ideally six, seven nights. There is four different islands which are uninhabited that we go to visit, up to four. You don't have to do four. Uh, and and you go to these islands for the day and so if you're not cruising, you get to, to see other parts of the archipelago that allow you to also appreciate the Galapagos environment in its pristine form on islands where the, the human uh, touch has been limited completely uh, in terms of, you know, no one can live there. So you can go and visit under regulations, right? Uh, and on Santa Cruz itself, although it's the more developed island, again, development is concentrated in specific areas. So you can also do plenty of things there, which are fun, uh, fun activities. You can kayak, you can go to beaches and swim. 
and other experiences that uh, that we can incorporate there, biking and so on. But you know, even at camp, as you as you were saying, there is so much wildlife around you that it's a matter of sitting down and just taking it all in. So yeah, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, John. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's an ideal location because you're in the cool highlands. You're maybe I don't remember twenty five minutes from the northern port, the ferry that takes you over to Baltra, mm -hmm. and then maybe 25, 30 minutes from Porto Ayora to the south. So if you, exactly. from the north, you could go to Bartolome or North Seymour, and from the south to South Plaza or Santa Fe. Yeah, and, exactly. And really get a feel for not just the island of Santa Cruz, which has all the volcanic features and organic coffee farms and... Um, tortoise reserves and the Darwin Center, but those other islands that are so different, um, Santa Fe Plaza, low, eroded, uplift islands, Bartolome, volcanic, higher, totally different species. You can swim with penguins there. Mm. It's, um, and then North Seymour is sort of the, if you only had one island to choose, that might be the one because you'll see so many of the species that you've heard about in one location. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But the beauty is to, to, to compare and contrast because, of course, that's when you realize how species have adapted and evolved. And uh, it, it's good to, to get that sense of, uh, of, of the Galapagos by, by having a few yeah. island visits. We think about diversity when we think about the Galapagos, uh, or island speciation anyway, but the landscape itself is so diverse, you need to see more than yeah. one island. Yes, absolutely. You'll, you'll miss it, and they are all mm -hmm. so special and different. What type of person makes the ideal guest for Galapagos Safari Camp? Who enjoys it most? Um... I would say that people who have a, an open mind and an open heart and an open soul, uh, those that are willing to, well, th th they've seen a lot and they want to, they're not looking for the air conditioned room. They're not looking for to replicate their ordinary life when they travel. You know, uh, nature lovers, absolutely. You need to love nature. If you don't love nature, then there isn't much point going to the Galapagos. And families, I think that it's so lovely for families of all ages, uh, and especially when you have grandparents and parents and children, and you see them all together and interacting. It's a place where they can reconnect with themselves, with each other, with the environment. Uh, but I think being open and flexible and appreciative of nature is, is the, the, the magic formula. Yeah, people are surprised to learn that Galapagos is, a, is an ideal location for families with, with younger children. And I sometimes compare it to an African safari for them, which usually has a minimum age of, I don't know, 12 to 14, depending on the camp. Because, mm -hmm. you know, safety is a real issue in Africa. In, with wildlife interaction. In Galapagos, these animals are curious and may approach you. You keep your distance, but they may approach you. Yes. But that's, that's not the risk. It's more about can you, can you listen to some instructions and follow instructions about boat safety. But we've had, we've had so many multi-generational families come and tell us later that meant everything to our family. We're planning to come back. Um, and then taking our own girls there, I think Mimi was four when we brought her, and the wide-eyed wonder, watching her at Chateau 2 see a giant tortoise come through the forest at her, and I have a photo of it. I'll put it with the podcast. Okay. But it was like watching her and Pippa stare into a Triceratops's eyes. <laughs> there are places like the Galapagos 
that offer more than just time to be away and to relax. They, they nourish the spirit. What is it that makes Galapagos so special for you? I was thinking about it in this last visit when, when we went back with the family and watching the kids and, you know, talking to the guides. And I, I never, I couldn't answer this question probably until now, actually, um, because I knew how I felt, but I couldn't put it into words. And I think now I understand a little bit the reason why. There is a sense of peace. There is a sense of just being. You're just there with nature. You know, you're snorkeling with a shark, minding its own business. You're snorkeling with sea lions and the pups come and play with you. And everything feels so harmonious. You're having breakfast and birds come to your table or you just observe the, the tortoises walking past your tent or wherever you are in the Galapagos, you have this feeling of harmony. Um, and one of the things that transpired in this last trip was the guide told us that these animals, of course, are fearless. We know that. We know that they're fearless because they have no natural predators. They, they, they survive, they live, they interact without fear. Whereas us humans, we're full of fear. We're always anxious. We're fearful of this. We're fearful of that. We're constantly defensive. We're constantly uh, running on a treadmill. You know, wherever it is, there is a sort of underlying fear and anxiety to most of us. Uh, and when you go to the Galapagos, that's almost as if you hit pause and you just are. And suddenly you're no longer trapped in your body and you're no longer a victim to these very intense, quite negative emotions. You just are and you blend with the natural environment. And I think that's what it is. Fear is the little death. Yeah. Or the big one. Or the constant one. The constant one. <laughs> what do you hope your guests will take away from their time in the Galapagos? Peace and feeling at home. And not at home exactly, you know, at the camp, but in their environment. Um, and I think that we largely achieve that. I, I love it when I see guests there or the feedback that we get. And, 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 and they do say, you know, I felt as if I was home. And I, at that point, I think, yes, yes, yes. We're doing it right. And we are, we've created a space that facilitates that. Listen, if we can achieve giving someone that little moment of reconnection, I think that's a gift. And uh, it is very touching that it is the type of place that inspires others to, to, to find that space and that moment of gratitude, of connecting, of, of, of being, and uh, that special. Well, you've touched on this, but. I'd love to have your mind on how tourism is essential for preservation of the Galapagos. We all know that there's two phases to, to tourism, right? There is the extractive part of tourism when you look at it worldwide. When we're discussing volume and numbers and business. Um, but there is another very benign and... and compassionate and uh, caring part face to tourism where you find that that virtual circle of everyone benefiting from it in in a in a kind and sustainable way um, where people learn to care about their environment where uh, some of the tourism dollars can also go into projects that can make a difference to socially and to the environment. And I think that the, the, the Galapagos naturally lends itself to, to that because it is a national park. And that is a fact. 98% uh, of the archipelago is national park. Uh, the marine reserve is hugely important and the government recognize that and, and have, as you know, uh, taken steps to, to, to enlarge 
the area of the marine reserve. There are plenty of projects to either study, explore, or preserve the natural environment. And all of that, whether we like it or not, requires money. I mean, it's the reality of it. Uh, so when there is no tourism, that stops and projects get halted. Uh, and, and, and that has a very negative impact on the environment. And socially, again, whether we like it or not, there is a local population which will grow and development which will need to be controlled. Uh, and, and it is a local population that need to be, needs to be educated. They need to be made aware of their environment and how to preserve it. If these people are in need, they will inevitably have to engage in other activities which will have to be extractive, right? We've seen that with fishing in the past. Uh, there have been projects that have managed to somewhat limit that. So, so it's a fine balance. Um, but, but, but I do think that if there was, if there was no tourism, uh, I mean, the local population is not going to disappear overnight. Right. And they will need to get engaged in other activities. And again, with all the projects that, that, that can contribute not just to the Galapagos, but to the world, understanding the natural environment and the impact and how potential solutions, right? Yeah, Galapagos is, is so worth preserving. It's so worth our, our care, our stewardship. Mm -hmm. it, it must survive for future generations and the best hope we have of preserving the ocean and the islands is teaching people its value and there's to me there's there's maybe no substitute for experiencing it firsthand on a small scale that's appropriate that's not extractive as you said um that gives back to the local community and doesn't extort the animals or the islands. Mm -hmm. you know, small groups, 16 to 1 guide ratio, small boats. If you look at our website, it's almost exclusively the smallest boats. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of experience, life-changing experience and and transformation from a visitor to an ambassador takes place when you get that one-on-one -on -one interaction with the species and the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was Sir David Attenborough, and, and of course he's a, a hero. May he win the and Nobel he... Prize. <laughs> But one of the things he said, which stuck to me, was, you know, I can't quote him precisely, but it went along the line of you can only care and look after, take care of and look after what you know. And in order to know, you need to experience it. And this goes hand in hand with what you're saying at the moment when, when you visit the Galapagos and you have this type of experience, you, you do become an ambassador. You do, it, it becomes personal. And when thing, something becomes personal, you care for it. And it's not just a holiday, you know? These islands are such a big part of your, your story, your family. Do you miss them terribly? I miss them terribly. I think we all miss them terribly. But you carry them in your heart, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and of course, we miss them terribly, and it would be absolutely lovely to be able to be closer. And, but there is plenty of time in life. And uh, during this last visit with, with Lawrence and Jasmine and hearing them say, We'd love to come back and the thought that at some point in their life, they, they might be able to go back in some capacity to contribute, you know, who knows? I mean, Lawrence has always been, well, both actually, Lawrence and Jasmine have always been very 
science oriented who, who knows what where they might end up and what they might do and with the experience they've had to be able to go back and do something positive not with the camp but for the islands that would be lovely why is travel meaningful for you because it gives me a different perspective more understanding uh, it opens my mind, it opens my heart. Um, I think that our human nature, the norm is to see things from one perspective, from, from our perspective only. But when you go and see things, places, people, you have to put yourself in, in their shoes or it's the learning component of it. And, and, and yeah, the open mind. Stephanie Bonham Carter, thank you for your time. My best to Michael, your son, your daughter, and to the camp. And uh, it's an honor to count you as a friend. John, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to Erin and, and, and the girls. Uh, and I hope that each one of them will be able to come and, and stay and experience the, the camp from a different perspective, too. But thank you for your time and your support always. Thank you. I, I do know a young lady who's very interested in coming to be part of the camp soon. I know, I know, and I can't wait. Right. All the best. Thank you, John. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about custom travel in Latin America and the Antarctic, reach out to us at landedtravel.com. Since 2006, Landed's success has been built on word-of-mouth referrals. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to rate the podcast or share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. <laughs>